Hello, I'm Samia Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of Fempeak. On this podcast, I speak to some of the most brilliant minds of our time to help us navigate emerging technologies leading to a socioeconomic singularity. Our guest on today's podcast is Stephen McClurk, co-founder of Valkyrie Investment. We discuss the role of VCs in the blockchain space, the institutional adoption of crypto, and whether decentralization should become a value that we adopt in society, and whether DAOs could disrupt the VC model. Stephen has some great perspectives on these topics, which I think you will also enjoy hearing. You come from that investment background. Um, what got you interested in looking at blockchain technology? Because a lot of times I see that people in the blockchain, you know, like people who are like more decentralization max- maximalists in some ways, they're like, VCs are this and VCs are that and like you know they're they don't like that but at the same time without the VC money this industry is not going to go anywhere so do you get that kind of pushback and what why did you decide to invest in in blockchain technology yeah absolutely well i um started my career more in traditional finance and um i uh, spent a lot of time as a bond trader um and a bond manager uh, particularly in sovereign credit, emerging market credit, euro bonds. Uh, so my focus was really non-US, particularly emerging markets. And one of the things that I noticed from covering emerging markets was the very high cost of sending money around the world. Uh, and so early on, when when Bitcoin was first launched, I I I followed it very closely, um, starting in about, I started following it in 2009. I wasn't smart enough to start mining it back then or, 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 or even, you know, invest in it until a few, few years later. Um, but I kind of wondered if Bitcoin was going to make it. And I bought it as a hedge against me being wrong. Uh, but it really wasn't until about 2016 that I started seeing some of the other features of blockchain that got me interested in uh, in areas that were outside of just the movement of money, right? So, you know, Bitcoin is a great answer to the high cost of remittances, the high cost of, of moving and transferring money. But uh, as, as somebody that was working in bonds, um, I actually saw smart contracts as a solution to actually make them more efficient because the bond market is an extremely inefficient market. And if you can take bond debentures, which are very different, you know, when, when a company issues equity, most of the time public equity all looks the same. You know, there might be different features in the way that it's structured uh, from a corporate governance standpoint, but for the most part, equity is equity. And it's really easy to analyze. When companies issue bonds, each bond debenture is very different, even from the very bonds that are issued by the same companies. And that, that those differences in structure is really what creates some of the inefficiency and illiquidity of the bond market. But if you can programmatize uh, bond debentures on a smart contract, then you can essentially make it more efficient. So. So that's why I left the bond 
the bond industry back in 2016 and really started pursuing blockchain. And after a couple of years of pursuing blockchain on the technical side of things and all the things that I just described, I kind of came back around to, well, Bitcoin is, is real money. Uh, Bitcoin is hard money. It's a hard asset. And it's probably the most perfect money that we have at the moment. So look, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I'm, I'm certainly a Bitcoiner and I'm very pro-Bitcoin. And I believe that it is, it is, it is the answer to a lot of a lot of problems uh, as far as monetary systems go. But at the same time, I also believe in the transformative technology of blockchain as it relates to a lot of other things. Uh, so, so that's how I got out of traditional finance and got into it. And now I've kind of circled back around to, yeah, Bitcoin is money. Um, and a lot of these other blockchain technologies are certainly innovative. That's fascinating. So, you know, when Charles Babbage conceptualized the first computer, he was thinking of it as a solution to solving math problems and logarithmic problems. And it was only his protege, uh, Ada Lovelace, who looked at that and said, actually, this can be used for so many other things. So that's how I compare Bitcoin with, let's say, Ethereum or, um, you know, these other blockchain technologies that essentially they looked at what Bitcoin was doing for money. And they said, how can we use the, a similar kind of technology to decentralize everything? I recently gave a TED talk and I uh, said in the TED talk that essentially the way I see it, decentralization is the next generation of democracy. I'd love to know whether you agree with that. And do you think that decentralization should become a value? Yeah, look, I, I think there are a lot of good use cases for decentralization. Um, but not everything should be decentralized. And I think that's one of the problems that we have run into uh, in the industry in the last five years is all of these projects that are, that are focused on decentralization of everything. And there's some things that don't need to be decentralized. There's some things that shouldn't be decentralized. And there's some things that are more efficient the way that they are. Um, if you look at Bitcoin itself, uh, it's decentralized nature and it's hard-coded uh, monetary supply is actually what makes it great. So you don't have the pressure of a, a centralized group of economists that aren't great market participants, you know, like, like several uh, central bankers that are just printing more money uh, and, and making those decisions really in a vacuum uh, that have an effect on all of us. I mean, look at where the world right now, not just the US, is experiencing high levels of inflation. And, and it's come upon us suddenly by centralized decisions, as opposed to hard capping money, monetary supply and decentralizing um, the validation of the transfer of that money. Uh, anytime you centralize money, like, like what we currently experience uh, in, in, in the US and other countries, uh, there is an opportunity for the centralized participants to take an outsized uh, chunk of, of the transfer or the custody of that money. And Bitcoin simply doesn't allow that. Now, there have been centralized services that have popped up that makes it easier for people to use, right? So for instance, it's very difficult for the average person just to go buy their own Bitcoin or mine their own Bitcoin and hold it in a wallet and create their own hardware wallet and move it around. 
Uh, so some of these services have made it easier. I mean, I even see Lightning as sort of a centralized um, uh, process on top of Bitcoin to help with the transference of money or uh, a lot of wallet solutions or OTC solutions, uh, even the exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini, uh, these are centralized exchanges, but they help facilitate people uh, into the network. Um, so, uh, and then going beyond in some of the other areas, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, decentralized projects that have failed because of you know some of the reasons I, I, I said before, not everything needs to be centralized. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of areas that, uh, that need to be centralized. And, and I like to use the word open source a little bit more than, than centralization, uh, because uh, if you open source the code and you allow uh, constant improvements and transparency uh, to the code, um, it's, it's, even though it's decentralized, uh, it, is, it is more effective. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have a video on YouTube about open source and explaining what it is and why it's important. And that's such a good point. I really like that. So um, one of the biggest problems that we need to solve here is defining tokens, because we've got this big issue of tokens being security, not being security, you know, and, and for people wanting to invest in these and, and like buy these tokens, whether they're fungible or non-fungible. Um, are you doing any type of work with governments on trying to understand how to create regulations around tokens? Because I think that tokens are something new under the sun. They're completely new phenomenon. Uh, and none of the regulations that we have actually apply to them. From where you stand, how do you see this conversation evolving? Is there an acknowledgement that we don't understand tokens? Yeah, you know, I think some governments do, some governments don't. And I, I think we are often failing is there, there are regulations in a lot of countries, you know, and I'll use the US because that's where I'm mostly focused. Um, you know, there are rules around securities. There are uh, rules around things that aren't securities. There's definitions of what is a security, what isn't a security. And then a lot of people will kind of make statements like, well, you know, there are no rules. We don't understand the rules. Well, there needs to be probably a few more definitions in order for mass adoption. But for the most part, a lot of rules are in place and, you know, we, as, as, as many others uh, in the industry, are, are trying to stay within that, that structure and within that rule set. Again, further definition is needed. Uh, I know, you know Warren Davidson, who's a, uh, a, a US representative, is looking to pass a, a token taxonomy uh, act. Uh, that way there's, there's better definitions around uh, tokens themselves. And I think that that's a, that's a really good thing. Uh, Senator Loomis from uh, Wyoming uh, has also been very focused on uh, establishing rules and really, and what's great about her is she's been working on decentralizing uh, the rules saying, you know, maybe this should be a state by state issue, you know, uh, states like Wyoming and Tennessee have passed rules around uh, DAOs and how they operate and specific rules around uh, blockchain. Um, I've worked very closely with uh, uh, Jason Powell who's a, a Democratic state representative in, uh, in Tennessee, who has been uh, a leader in a lot of the Tennessee legislation and, uh, and pushed through unanimously 
uh, its DAO Act uh, only a couple of weeks ago. So um, I, I like the fact that it's state by state. You know, New York, for instance, uh, is really clamping down on it. You know, uh, you know, New York is where it's really the center of traditional finance, and they're doing a lot of things to limit uh, blockchain technologies and Bitcoin within the state. You know, they've they passed the bit license, which has uh, made it very difficult for non-legacy players to uh, get into Bitcoin. Uh, and they're right now trying to pass rules around mining in the state of New York. And all that's going to do is decentralize the financial system outside of New York and into places like Texas and Florida, Wyoming and Tennessee, which are embracing this new technology and open arms. And there's been a mass exodus uh, from states like California and New York into the states that are more willing to accept it. And I, and I like that. I, I, I think that states should have the right. Uh, I don't blame New York for wanting to have very strict rules. Um, I don't blame Wyoming and Tennessee for uh, enacting legislation that makes it very open uh, because it decentralizes the industry. We, we don't want one city and one state to dominate cryptocurrencies like they have with traditional finance globally. Uh, so it's, it's a good thing, you know, uh, yes. let people choose where they want to be. Yeah, that's that's true. But, you know, all of my life, I imagine myself living in New York at some point. I'm in London now, you know, and since New York has become so not crypto friendly, it kind of puts me off from wanting to go and live in New York anymore. Um, but that said, um, in the UK, our uh, chancellor of exchequers has uh, recently announced that the UK is going to become the crypto hub of Europe. Not sure if you followed that news, but that was like about 10 days ago or so. Um, and of course, for people watching this, this will be probably a few weeks. Now, I studied philosophy of science and technology and also uh, transatlantic studies. And in my transatlantic studies, we learned that um, the UK and the US have this special relationship and that the UK wouldn't do anything without, you know, some kind of a okay from the US. So I was wondering whether you have any thoughts on this whole UK-US relationship and also why is it that there is this lack of unanimity? Because like on the, on the one hand, the EU is being not very crypto friendly. And then the UK is saying we are going to become the crypto hub of Europe. And then within US, there's all this fractionalization. What is the source of this fractionalization, you think? Yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, uh, in traditional finance, uh, I've always noticed that, you know, London and New York do work together, but I feel like London has always tried to be very independent from New York and uh, has, has always made efforts to really own the areas that New York doesn't, right? So, uh, you know, the U.S. capital markets are clearly one of the, you know, biggest or the biggest capital markets in the world, and and it's run out of New York. And London has always uh, tried to keep a a strong grasp on non-U.S. and uh, and and have everything run through there. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily, uh, you know, permission asking. Uh, there's definitely competition, and I. Looks to me that uh, that competition is very strong in in the UK. Seeing that the US is picking up uh, a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of the industry that's coming in from blockchain with the uh, with the bans in China, and I think UK is very quickly trying to jump on top of it and 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 gain control again, so to speak. Um, 
the EU is really interesting because uh, within the EU, certain countries have been uh, way more welcoming than others. Uh, Portugal yeah. has been a place where a lot of people are moving to because uh, they've created a very favorable tax treatment for uh, holding of cryptocurrencies, along with a lot of other things too. You know, it feels like Portugal is the, uh, the Puerto Rico of, uh, of Europe. And, um, and, and a lot of people have been uh, moving there, particularly from the UK. But uh, I think the UK has noticed that and they're, and they're trying to regain footing. Um, and, and I think that they have a, a big opportunity to do so, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, there's certainly, you know, strong financial service uh, industry in, in, in London. Um, there were a lot of projects uh, that were happening in Ireland and Scotland, and, uh, and I think those are going to uh, continue. So um, it really wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if the UK begins to start attracting talent again and really comes to the forefront of this industry. Well, I hope so, because um, I'm in London and I originally come from Iran. I came to the UK in 2005. I studied here and, uh, you know, stayed and never been back. So it's coming to 20 years now. Um, you mentioned emerging markets. I'd like to hear your thoughts on those. This is, uh, you know, super interesting for me, especially because I still have family in the Middle East. And I just wonder what's going to happen to them with the speed of technology this is a steep learning curve. On the other hand, I've heard that there are people in, in Pakistan, for example, that are already using crypto payment. And then we have El Salvador. And speaking of this idea of the world order changing, uh, you know, in the words of uh, Ray Dalio, how do you see emerging markets impacting the blockchain technology? Yeah, well, I actually think that um, emerging markets are going to leapfrog uh, other markets. And we saw that in telecom, yes. uh, if you remember, when, um, you know, the, the, the US and, and the UK and Western Europe, uh, you know, they had a very strong legacy telecom uh, uh, system in place. And when cell technology came out, uh, emerging markets generally completely leapfrogged us. They bypassed uh, that legacy system altogether and went straight to cell phone technology and got phones in the hands of, of everyone. Uh, you, you go to uh, a lot of places and you might, you know, in, in, in some of the poorer countries, you've have people with, with huts and dirt floors and no other technology, but every single person has a cell phone. So the fact that everybody has the technology in their hands and the ability to not only communicate, but now also transact, utilizing those cell phones is extremely powerful. Um, and the need also is, uh, is very strong in most emerging countries, um, you know, in, uh, in developed countries like, uh, the, the U S and Western Europe, um, most people are, are banked. We have bank accounts and, uh, and we rely on the banking system, um, outside of those countries, uh, most of the populations are largely unbanked. And, uh, so the need is greater and to move directly into blockchain technology uh, in order to transact in currencies that are inflation-proof is extremely important too, right? So uh, we already having, you know, the, the the stories, you know, even today uh, there was an announcement that uh, a a country in Central Africa uh, has just adopted Bitcoin as its national currency. El Salvador has already done it. Panama is close. These are tiny countries and people think it doesn't matter, but it does matter. 
um, because in the case of El Salvador, uh, they were largely using the U.S. dollar. And anytime that the Fed would print more money, it was essentially a tax on not only people in the U.S. that are using the dollar, but anybody around the world who's using the dollar because uh, they debase the currency. So in El Salvador, your tax rate to the U.S. government is in the form of inflation. And now they've moved to a currency that is anti-inflationary. It's, it's only ever less than 21 million Bitcoin. So I believe more and more countries are going to be able to, to adopt, number one, uh, Bitcoin or other currencies uh, as a official currency of the country. But number two, uh, utilize the technology for transfers. Uh, another good example is remittances. You know, if you if you look at the way that global payments are set up at the moment, um, you know, and I noticed this in uh, the Middle East mostly, um, particularly in places like uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, where you have a lot of people. The majority of the people that come over there to work are in, from places like India and the Philippines, and they get paid in the local currency in the UAE, but then they have to trade it for either Great British pounds or U.S. dollars before. They trade it back to their own local currency to send it back to their family. So not only are you uh, paying a, a transaction fee uh, the first time around, you're paying it twice. And that's highly inefficient. Uh, so I believe that uh, countries like the UAE that uh, have a lot of foreign workers and then countries that provide a lot of foreign workers like India and Philippines are going to very quickly move to blockchain uh, technologies uh, to uh, to make those payments more efficient. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is DAOs, um, you know, investment DAOs. I had somebody on our platform, you, I don't know if you might know her, Angela Dalton, she advises. So I she, know her very well. Oh, she's, I really love her. She's amazing. I, yeah. I think she's great. So we really, you know, we are always making effort to bring in, you know, more amazing women like that onto the platform as well. And um, she mentioned that DAOs will potentially, not just necessarily DAOs, but, but decentralization of investment would change the nature of VC investment, would disrupt it. So the reason why I asked that, sort of a selfish question, because we now have interest from VCs, but we also have interest from some DAOs wanting to invest in the platform that we're building. And I just wonder, would that marriage even work? <laughs> you know, how yeah, would that work? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. First of all, a Angie is a uh, is a very close friend of mine, and we're actually really? former, okay. former colleagues. Uh, we worked together at the same TradFi firm, and we were the two crazy people that were uh, preaching blockchain when uh, when when everybody else thought that we were completely mad. Um, and and we've uh, of course you know done a lot of projects together in the last few years. Um, I, I agree with Angie that uh, that there is a lot of opportunity to uh, make. Uh, to make investment decisions through DAOs. Um, I have once, you know, a lot of it's very theoretical at the moment, by the way. Um, but uh, recently, we actually dealt with a decentralized organization on a money management mandate. So um, we actually uh, began managing the treasury for uh, the NIM communities and uh, the symbol communities. And the way that we came about as their treasury manager was that it was through a vote from the community itself that voted us in. Uh, so uh, uh, it was a really interesting process. 
Uh, and it took several months to do it and uh, a lot of community engagement. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, what's great about that is, you know, we were we were voted in as the treasury manager by the by the community. We continue to engage with the community and the community has been absolutely great uh, in supporting us. And, and it's kind of hard to describe, but, you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, in traditional finance, you might manage money for a pension fund. Right. And oftentimes uh, the decisions are made at the very top. Uh, there's an investment committee and a CIO of a pension fund. But imagine that in order to get a mandate to manage a pension's money, you didn't sit in front of a you know, five person committee. You actually had to go out and get votes from every single pensioner. Okay. That, that, that's a complete game changer. It creates a relationship, a more direct relationship between you and the in-person that's affected by how you're, how you're managing money, right? And, and we always, you know, and, and you know, the, the traditional finance firm that, that, that I was involved in, you know, one of, there was a, there was a, a woman who, uh, she would always say this, her name was Ann Walsh. And she would always say that, you know, when we manage money for a pension fund, we don't think about the investment committee that, that, that hired us. We think about all the pensioners the people that are actually working hard for that money, that rely on that money to survive when they retire, we think about them. And they're the ones that matter to us and they're the ones that are important to us. So, in, so imagine a DAO where if every one of them voted for you, you, have that, you now have that relationship for them and you're impacting them uh, at, at the very core level of what you're doing. Same thing with insurance, right? You, you, you manage a life insurance account um, oftentimes you're like, oh yeah, managing money for this you know, big insurance company. But really what you're doing is every one of their clients is relying on you to make good decisions in order for them to get their, you know, their life insurance paid out to their family if something were to happen to them. So that's who you should be caring about. And again, to have them to be the people that vote you in and that you've got to maintain that relationship and you've got to maintain that community it's a complete game changer in traditional finance. And I think eventually it could go that direction. It'll be a while, but uh, it's extremely important. I think it's so fascinating because money is so faceless. You know, like when you put your money in the bank, you don't know what they do with it, you know, who is managing it, you know, and if you're investing, you know, there's no connection between the people who are managing your money and you whereas this could be so fascinating but i can see now for example with uh, the members on our platform you know they come to the discord uh, group and and we actually have on a daily basis we have interaction and they ask questions and we answer them you wouldn't have that in the past if you had an educational platform people would go and watch the content or you know join the live sessions or whatever but there wouldn't be anything else so so DAOs are fascinating now my question is like, let's say, for example, a startup like us, you know, trying to now raise funds. So we've raised about a million dollars so far, closing our seed funds, you know, and, and then going into the next round. Now I'm in this place thinking about, should we tokenize? I'm guessing that, you know, being in the investment space, you probably come across other startups that are at this kind of juncture, you know, in, in some ways and thinking about 
should we tokenize? And when is a good time to tokenize? You know, if you were a company to begin with and you didn't tokenize, you know, at what point do you tokenize? Or, or can you combine tokenization and traditional investment? Yeah, I think it's tough. I, I think it's something that a lot of people have, have considered and looked into. And there's a lot of promise, kind of like how, you know, the old crowdfunding uh, companies that came out after the Jobs Act in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., it didn't work that great. Uh, in the UK, it worked really well. Um, and, and tokenization is, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, it's really meant to uh, democratize the uh, investments into a company uh, to a greater number of people and allow more people to do it. Um, the reality is, is um, you know, if the tokenization means a security, um, in, in the US, there just isn't a great marketplace right now for uh, private equity, the tokenization of private equity. A lot of people have tried it funds, um, you know, uh, companies, and it just hasn't turned out that great, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, and unfortunately, it's still, you know, larger entities that you have to go to, uh, to raise capital from, and uh, you just don't get the size of capital that you need uh, from, you know, from, from communities that are writing smaller checks through tokens. Yeah. Um, now, if it's, a, if it's not a security and there's, there's some functionality to the token, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a different story. But a lot of times, even, even then, there hasn't been much functionality to the tokens. Uh, very few have proven that, uh, that they have the ability to transcend that. Yeah, I mean, look at the Ape token, right? Like, it, it sometimes feels like when you read their explanation of what the token is, it's like, come on, guys, you literally just put these put this list to make it look like there's some kind of utility. It's a dump, right? Like all these people that, you know, they, they airdrop apes to all these people and then they dumped it on the market and uh, with, with, with no utility whatsoever. I mean, it's kind of a scam. It's supposed to be something that you would use in their metaverse or whatever, you know. So, okay, so no, that's 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 really helpful, and I think a lot of people listening to this, there. So we have a combination of our our listeners, um, are a combination of people who are working already in. Uh, traditional, I said this before, actually, in in today's session, I'm trying not to use the term traditional finance anymore, because I had, um, I once had a gentleman from uh, a bank on my podcast, and I kept saying traditional banks, traditional organizations. And, And I think that I upset him because he was in the end, he was like, or traditional markets, as you would call them. And I was like, okay, from now on, I'm going to call it legacy. So, you know, so we have quite a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people who listen to, um, you know, this uh, podcast that are from legacy banking and legacy institutions. And we also have a lot of people who listen to who are entrepreneurs and, and trying to kind of get their head around this whole blockchain technology, how it will impact them. I guess that the bottom line is maybe for a company like us, it would make sense to still stick to the traditional or legacy uh, system of raising investment because we are going increasingly more towards a B2B route. So initially, my idea was that if all companies were already used to the idea of tokens, we could get them to buy our tokens and then stake the tokens. And because they stake it, you know, then we would give them certain things on the platform, you know, or we are building a job board that they will access the job board. But the truth is that most companies are not yet at a place that they even have a, a crypto wallet, right? Like they don't, they're not there yet. 
So it doesn't really make sense. So that so then what you do is you cut you make your customer acquisition more complicated, and yeah, exactly. and you make you make their life harder, and you want to make make it as easy as possible. Because I get this question quite a lot that people say. So what do you do? I'm like we are a, a Web three education platform. We are focusing mostly on bringing more people, more companies into this space, more like a B two B play. But we also have a B two C side. The reason for the B two C side is that we are building our talent pool so that companies can hire from because they're they're going to need to find new people who understand NFTs, who understand marketing in Web three, all that stuff. So uh, then people say that how can you be a Web three education platform and not be a Web three company? So, you know, like this is a criticism that I get. And I guess this is how I can explain it because you're going to make it harder for those people to be onboarded. That's why we now have our NFTs being released. This is like our uh, touch on, you know, the Web3 side. This is our our kind of non-fungible token so that we still give back something to the community and, and we say like, this is what we are yeah we're doing but i don't think necessarily so like when to go web3 right so if you have any previous examples of companies that you're working with that maybe are in that position yeah i i I agree and um i mean look valkyrie does a lot in you know across the board and we don't have a token we don't need a token that's that's not what we do you know Mm -hmm. Uh, a protocol layer has a token that's what they do um you know, they're, they're, they're a protocol. So I don't, I don't, I think unless you're a protocol, there's no reason why you should have it. I, I don't think Mazari has a, has a token. They're, they're, they provide a lot of education. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I think if you're, if you are a protocol and things are being built on top of your platform, you know, and uh, you're utilizing that token to, um, to, to charge for fees for activities that happen on top of your protocol. Great. Outside of that, I don't think you need a token. Yeah, that's such a good answer. Nobody has ever mentioned that to me like that. I'm I'm going to steal that and make sure that I credit you. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Okay, so bringing it towards the end of the conversation, it's been my observation that because of the crypto ecosystem, a lot of people have taken an interest in financial literacy that they didn't before. A lot of day to day people that are coming into the space that are learning about investment. And they're even seeing themselves being in a position that they could start becoming angel investors. So we've got a lot of um, members on our platform that have got some some money sitting around and they may not be accredited investors, but they have some money. And they think that could crypto be a way for me to start becoming an investor? Do you have any suggestions, thoughts for people thinking about how do I start my journey as an investor using crypto? Yeah, it's that's a tough one because you know everybody you know has different risk tolerances and and different and a different set of knowledge base. Uh, if 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 you really want to get in and do something that's that's safe and proven with some upside, just buy Bitcoin. Yeah, first I of agree. all, just buy Bitcoin. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then you can start exploring other things. Do you want to start investing in companies? Great. Do you want to start investing uh, in other things? Great. But learn Bitcoin first. Amazing. So you say Bitcoin. Would you also say any other coins, or like Ethereum, or anything like that, or just Bitcoin? Just start with Bitcoin. Learn Bitcoin, and then move on from there. You know, yes. um, you know, Ethereum is something that I think it's a bit old technology. 
Uh, yeah, it's being utilized a lot today, but it's it's slow. Its fees are high. Um, it's sort of like the BlackBerry when the iPhone came out. Um, I don't know if that's something that I would necessarily utilize as far as a protocol goes. Um, you know, like I said, Bitcoin is something that is it's it's money. Yes. Uh, it's proven itself as money. It's uh, it's secure. It's it's you know the speed is the speed. You know, it's no slower, no faster uh, than it will ever be. Um, and uh, it's relatively cheap to uh, ch to transact in. Uh, but yeah, like I said, you know, just start there, learn, you know, learn the Godfather and then, you know, figure it out from there what you want to do next. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been great. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Stephen McClurg. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and check out his other fantastic interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full reviews are also available on my YouTube channel.